welcome to Meeting Room 7. This is the fifth podcast in the series from the IP team at Stevenson Bolton, in which we're considering patent and know-how licensing in the life sciences world. I'm Charlie Tillett. I'm a partner in the IP team and head of the life sciences group. And for this episode, I'm again joined by two very knowledgeable colleagues. From our IP team, we have Tom Collins, who's a senior associate. Hey. And we have a special guest appearance from Catherine Penny, who's a partner in our commercial litigation team, and she has particular specialist knowledge in the world of arbitration. Hello. Our previous podcasts have covered topics such as defining the scope of the deal, maintaining control of IP whilst allowing the licensee the commercial freedom it needs, payment terms and common pitfalls, and termination. In our fifth and sixth episodes, we're going to consider disputes that may arise from a patent license agreement and where things unfortunately go wrong between the parties. This is going to be an exciting two-part topic. And in today's first part, we are going to focus on key provisions in an agreement that are needed to properly address potential disputes and the drafting of these provisions to appropriately cover the issues. So we're looking really at governing law, jurisdiction, dispute resolution mechanisms, and enforcement. All those clauses towards the end of the agreement that you probably don't always give the attention that they deserve and uh, that you hope you never have to rely on. And then in our second part, in the next episode, we'll then look in more detail at practicalities relating to the procedure of bringing a dispute and strategy of disputes in this area of patent agreements. So Catherine, coming to you first, Please, can you give us an explanation of what the governing law and jurisdiction clauses in an agreement mean? Of course, thanks for the introduction, Charlie, and I'm really pleased to be joining you today and next time to talk about these issues. Um, So governing law and jurisdiction clauses, stay with me because I'm going to go right back to basics here, um, because different countries around the world have different rules and laws which apply. And given that, when entering into a contract with someone, it's important to agree whose rules you're playing by and contracting by, i.e. what is the applicable law, and who you want to decide is correct if you fall out with your counterparty and you have a dispute, i.e. which jurisdiction is relevant and which courts or tribunals will decide your dispute. For a good applicable law, and I put quote marks around good there, you're usually looking for the laws of a country that are well respected and followed around the world. And when it comes to jurisdiction clauses, again, you want a jurisdiction which is well respected around the world and one which is predictable, such as the English courts. You also need to think about whether the judgment of that country will be recognised when at the end of a trial you come to enforce your judgment, i.e. when you want to stop any infringement or more relevant to what we're talking about here, collect cash that is owed to you. So you need to think about where your counterparty is and where their cash is. Great. Thanks, Catherine. So picking up a little bit then on the enforcement points that you mentioned, let's think a bit more about that and how that feeds into what you include in your dispute resolution clause, particularly given the nature of patent license agreements, which are usually international in nature. Yeah, so for um, a domestic contract, let's say, starting there, if you've got a contract between two English companies 
that both have their assets in England and we're talking about an English patent. Um, English law is the obvious and usual choice as the applicable law. And as for jurisdiction in that context, the obvious options would be the English courts or an English seated arbitration. I'll just pause there to tell you a little bit more about what arbitration is, as it's still perceived as um, an unusual jurisdiction. In summary, arbitration compared with litigation, arbitration is a private process where the parties pay the arbitrators, i.e. the judges, to decide their dispute. Crucially, arbitration can only happen if everyone agrees. If everyone doesn't agree, then litigation and going off to court is the default position. So it's sensible to agree to arbitration at the outset, so include an arbitration agreement in your patent license. Although you can agree to it at a later stage, parties generally aren't in a position to agree to anything when a dispute has arisen. And there are various points that should be covered in your arbitration agreement, such as the number of arbitrators, whether you're going to have some institutional rules that apply to the process, such as LCIA or ICC, um, and the seats and the law of the arbitration agreement. Now, arbitration is a binding process and there's limited opportunity for appeal. Now, coming back to what you actually asked, asked me about in terms of enforcement, crucially, in terms of enforcement, an arbitral award is enforced and recognised through the New York Convention, which has around 168 signatories uh, around the world. And generally speaking, it's simpler to enforce an arbitral award than the judgment of a national court. So, um, thinking about a practical example, um, instead of having your English companies with their English patent, we've got a Dutch company licensing an English patent from an English company, but most of the Dutch company's assets are held in Antigua, so you're going to have to go off to Antigua to chase the cash. And you'd probably still want English law to be the applicable law, but the English company would need to think about where it would go if the Dutch company didn't pay. And perhaps you'd be jumping on a plane and having a trip to the Caribbean, which might be right. Um, but in Antigua, it's certainly simpler to enforce an arbitral award than to enforce an English or a Dutch court judgment. And we'll come back to whether or not you actually get to go to Antigua a little later on. Well, keep me posted on that because always happy to uh, keep you company on that trip, Catherine. Um, so, Tom, why would English law and English jurisdiction, that's to say the courts of England and Wales, uh, be a good choice for an international patent licence? Um, I know we are probably a little bit biased here, but it would be helpful to talk through the points that should be taken to in, into account here. Sure. So I think considering English law first, now obviously this is not the only viable option, as you say, but there are many good reasons for choosing that in international agreements. I think primarily English law is known for its commercial compatibility and our common law is familiar to many English speaking countries all around the world. And it's very popular for international business because it offers flexibility, predictability and stability as well. And one of the primary reasons why English law can be a very good option is that it adopts a freedom to contract approach in contractual relationships between commercial parties. So the starting point will be that the parties are bound by the terms of their contractual agreement and English law has always been commercially minded with the focus on what the parties have actually agreed in their contract, which isn't always the case in other jurisdictions around the world. The, these factors give some predictability in the way that a contract will be interpreted and enforced in the courts. Now, 
that is something that's going to be very beneficial in the context of a complex patent license agreement, particularly where there's an international element. And will obviously also have kind of highly technical subject matter as well. So the parties in that scenario will want to have certainty as to the enforceability of those complex terms that have been negotiated at length between the parties, for example, relating to royalty payments or other kind of complex financial agreements that have been put in place in that patent license agreement. So I think there are good reasons why many parties do choose international English law, sorry, um, in international patent licenses. Moving on to jurisdictional considerations, there are also good reasons for selecting the courts of England and Wales. The English court system strikes a balance between ensuring that key evidence is available and avoiding disproportionate costs with disclosure. And it also makes sure that unmerited and weak claims are filtered out from the system through the mechanisms available for strikeouts and similar things along those lines. It does also give a mechanism for evidence from foreign jurisdictions in the form of witnesses and even documents. So, so that is obviously useful where you've got international jurisdictions involved as well. Another factor is that the judges in England and Wales are very experienced in resolving these international commercial disputes and they're very well respected for understanding the complexities of the modern commercial world and also for impartiality. And many of the English judges are very, very experienced previous practitioners with experience in exactly what is being disputed between the parties. Another thing to consider is that the English and Welsh judgments are also very highly persuasive in courts in other jurisdictions around the world. So as we said before, it's certainly not the only option here, but th- there are good reasons why English as a governing law and jurisdiction you know, does suit parties for many reasons. And just very briefly, as I know we're going to come back to this in more detail, but considering the jurisdictional side of things, having arbitration with a seat in England can also have its benefits, as there is a very good legislative flame- framework and world-class arbitrators based in the, in the UK, and London is often chosen as a seat for that reason, as it offers a neutral ground to resolve international disputes. Um, and again, for a complex patent license with different jurisdictions involved and parties with you know various other international considerations, then that's why um, that often becomes a good option. But as I said, we'll, we'll come back to that in a bit more detail. Great, thanks, Tom, that's really helpful. So staying here uh, on jurisdiction, we sometimes see in license agreements an exclusive jurisdiction clause, and sometimes it refers to a non-exclusive jurisdiction. Catherine, could you explain a little bit about the impact and difference between exclusive and non-exclusive jurisdiction and when you might choose one over the other? Definitely. So uh, exclusive means what it says on the tin. If you have a jurisdiction clause that says um, the parties will resolve their disputes exclusively through the courts of England and Wales, we're going to keep on um, talking about England and Wales, I'm afraid. Um, other options are available. Um, that means that you will only go to the English court to resolve your disputes if, if an issue crops up. And if you go to another court in a different country, you'll be in breach of this clause and your counterparty uh, will be entitled to claim damages. Non-exclusive um, means that you agree with your counterparty that whilst you can go to the courts of say England and Wales, um, you could also go to another court than the one that's been named. Now, often it's used to carve out enforcement issues and if you need to seek some sort of emergency injunctive relief so that you can go off to a different country to get that. But in a post-Brexit world that we're living in, um, we have to come back to the enforcement question um, and 
since Brexit, it's now generally advisable to commit to uh, an exclusive jurisdiction clause because the Hague Convention on the Choice of Court Agreements will apply if you've got an exclusive jurisdiction clause, and that will allow for simpler enforcement of any judgment in the Hague states, which is essentially the EU, Denmark, Mexico, and, and some others. If you have a non-exclusive jurisdiction clause, the Hague Convention won't apply, so it will be more, more difficult to enforce a judgment based on that. Um, in the context of international patent licensing, there is a wrinkle around this um, because of the way in which you would enforce your patent right, infringement rights, as opposed to contractual rights arising under the license. So it'll be worth seeking specific advice on that. Um, I should also finally mention on this, Charlie, that if you do have an arbitration agreement, you should not also include an exclusive or non-exclusive courts agreement because that's a conflict position between the two. And it's in, it would be inconsistent to say we agree to arbitrate and we agree to the exclusive jurisdiction on the English courts. That just doesn't make sense to a disputes lawyer like me um, and will be cause for strife and dispute between the parties. So avoid that if you can. Great, thank you very much. And that's a very interesting point that we've covered there on the non-exclusive jurisdictions, because in the context of an international patent license relevant to the uh, production of medicines in particular, this is often um, an enterprise that's going to cover many different jurisdictions around the world. So it's tempting as a first thought to say, well, it'd be helpful to be able to enforce in lots of different jurisdictions. So that's good to keep that, that point in mind that you've just made there. Thank you. So the next point uh, we're coming on to is dispute resolution mechanisms. And there are various different types of these. Um, I'd like to think a little bit about the options available in a patent and know-how license agreement for dispute resolution. And Catherine, maybe you could outline the different types of mechanisms, including alternative dispute mechanisms that you might find in an agreement and the choices to consider when drafting and negotiating a license like this. Uh, definitely. So the there are um, several, but I think probably I'll, I'll just cover the most common uh, and the most relevant, really. Um, everyone's favourite, um, traditionally speaking, is court litigation. And that's what people think about when, they're, when they've got a dispute is, oh, well, we'll have our day in court and we'll go off to court. And that's what we, we call that litigation. And so that'll be the national courts of the country of your choice or um, the courts that are imposed on you if you don't reach agreement and have it stated and spelt out in the agreement. Um, so court litigation is a binding process, um, but there's generally a possibility of appeal. So that's litigation. Uh, contrast that with private arbitration, which I've already talked about briefly, which is a confidential process. It's consensual, so everybody has to agree to it. So definitely mention it in your agreement if you want that. Um, it has the enforcement advantages. Um, it is also binding on the parties and there's very limited possibility of appeal. Other um, more formal dispute resolution methods that you may have seen mentioned are adjudication, early neutral evaluation and expert determination. I'm not going to go into any detail on those other than name checking them because they don't generally crop up in this area. Um, and then before we get on to um, 
a sort of more formal negotiation process called mediation that I expect everyone's heard of. I just want to um, mention negotiation via correspondence. And that's what lawyers spend most of our time doing. Um, and that is essentially having arguments via correspondence or at least trying to reach agreement as to what the outcome of a dispute should be through letters. And in England and Wales, we have um, pre-action protocols, which we have to follow um, before a matter gets off to court. And um, our obligation is to try and narrow the issues before going off to court. And, and it works. Most cases in England, Wales, England and Wales settle. And finally, I'll just mention mediation, which is a, a formal negotiation process where you've got an independent third party, i.e. the mediator, who tries to broker a deal between the parties. It's not a binding process, um, like litigation and arbitration, but the parties can agree that it will be binding. So you essentially have your mediation and then hopefully reach a deal at the end of it, which is then formalized into uh, an agreement and can be enforced in the usual way. And it's not unusual to have a mediation as part of a litigation or arbitration process. Often it works very well. You thrash out your positions in the court litigation or in the arbitration process, and then you have your off-the-record mediation where you broker your, your deal with your counterparty. That was a very quick canter through. I hope that's okay, Charlie. Thanks, that's very helpful. Thank you. And sometimes we see a combination of these types of mechanisms in agreements, uh, more of a tiered approach we refer to them as. Tom, can you outline for us what, what this means and when you might want to use this? Sure. So a multi-tiered clause, which is sometimes referred to as an escalation clause, generally requires parties to take one or more rounds of non-binding dispute resolution process before moving towards arbitration or litigation, as Catherine touched upon. A typical multi-tiered clause would require the parties to undertake direct informal discussions to resolve the dispute, followed by perhaps a formal mediation or other ADR process, then followed by binding arbitration litigation if settlement can't be achieved. So there are a number of layers to it. It's probably the easiest way of kind of describing it. And there are a number of potential advantages of using this kind of approach as providing various different stages that can arise under a contract can help resolve the matters without having to go down the court or arbitration route. So a well-drafted multi-tiered clause can potentially provide the opportunity to resolve disputes in a less kind of adversarial setting, which is obviously good. It can help to preserve an ongoing commercial relationship, which is a very important consideration, particularly in a patent license agreement where it will be a very long-term agreement and the parties will want to kind of maintain that agreement even when there is a dispute because it may well be critical to the ongoing development and commercialization of, of a drug product so even where there has been a fallout between the parties there would still be a need to maintain that commercial relationship so without rocking the boat going to court or arbitration having that kind of more informal setting to resolve that dispute can be very beneficial this kind of process can also save time and money as the spectre of arbitration or court proceedings at the end of the process can incentivize the parties to kind of reach an amicable agreement before going down that route as well. So there are obviously a number of good reasons for taking that approach in a contract, but there are also potential disadvantages that the parties would need to kind of be aware of as well. 
I think primarily having all these additional layers can increase the time it takes to actually resolve a dispute. So particularly for a party who's keen to to actually get some money or get to the end of a resolution or process, these additional steps can increase the time it takes to actually get to a, a, a kind of satisfactory resolution. So it isn't always beneficial in that scenario. And these ADR procedures can also involve additional costs. For example, having a formal mediation and will obviously incur further fees, which you do have to factor into that. And there's also lost management time in following that kind of process as well. And even without this kind of clause in a contract, the parties are obviously free to take any kind of informal steps that they wish to try and resolve this on an informal basis. So in some situations, it's beneficial not to have a very prescribed format of taking these various different steps because it can actually in some ways make it of a more rigid approach if you have a very kind of carefully drafted mechanism that the parties have to follow and sometimes it's better to actually leave it slightly more open-ended so the parties have flexibility as to how they decide to resolve that so as i said there, there are there are definitely advantages in this kind of format in an agreement and it's something to definitely bear in mind in a patent license but it's also being aware that it, it isn't always in the interest of both parties to follow that very rigid procedure Great, thanks very much, Tom. Now we've touched um, a little bit so far on arbitration, and I'd like to think a bit more about arbitration now. Catherine, can you tell us a bit about when you might choose arbitration over litigation, in particular in the context of an international patent license? And what are the key differences, pros and cons between arbitration and litigation? Uh, certainly. So for um, an international patent license, I think the key aspects of arbitration that will be attractive are the confidentiality that it will bring to the process. It's a private process and like court litigation, which could potentially end up in the newspapers. Um, an arbitration process won't have that um, potentially hanging over it, which if you're dealing with confidential uh, know-how and pricing information and, and things like that that you don't want your competitors to see. Um, you don't want to A or dirty laundry in public, as the saying goes, then arbitration is is advantageous from that perspective. Um, but also uh, the benefits of enforcement that you get from arbitration that I mentioned earlier, and you just get around the whole Hague Convention, um, Brexit, issue but also even before brexit was an issue um the enforcement of a uh, an award in for example the usa uh, is much more straightforward than um a, a court judgment in, in terms of key differences um i could talk about arbitration all day long so bear with me i'll just run through um i think i've got seven key differences that i wanted to mention the first is flexibility so the parties can do what they like in the context of an arbitration process compared within a, a court process where you're driven by the court rules and timetable and availability and so on. Timing is the next point I wanted to mention. In a court process, you're restricted by whatever availability the court has. And I think I saw the other day that for listing some matters in the English courts, you could be waiting 35 weeks just to get your first appointment. Um, whereas in an arbitration, you're in the private sector. So you effectively just need to find an arbitrator that's got the availability that you want. I mean, it's not the panacea um, that it might sound like because the good arbitrators are hard to come by, but um, there are um, options there that you don't have when it comes to the uh, court system. 
location is the next one. Um, for court litigation, generally you're stuck with London or one of the regional centres around the UK. With arbitration, you can go wherever you want in the world, but as Tom mentioned, you need to think about where your seat is of, of, of the arbitration, and that's generally the location of where the arbitration is to be held, um, because um, the seat of the arbitration uh, will impose the rules uh, of that country into the process of the arbitration. So you want a, um, a location where the system in place there is supportive of arbitration. Um, that that's quite a complex issue, issue to get your head around, the interaction between the seat of the arbitration um, and the courts in that country. Um, uh, but it is something you need to think about. So in our scenario earlier, you could have Antigua as the seat of your arbitration, but you need to think about what the laws are what the laws look like in Antigua in terms of whether they support an arbitration process or not. Um, confidentiality, I wanted to mention, but I've already um, harped on about that enough. Um, fees, arbitration is perceived as being more expensive than litigation. And I think that's true in terms of the upfront cost of the arbitrators, because you're essentially paying the arbitrators by the hour compared to the court system uh, where the judges pay is, is subsidized by the taxpayer, essentially. You don't have that advantage in arbitration. Finality, for arbitration, you can't really appeal the award that you get. There are only very, very limited grounds. Whereas in court litigation, you, there is the opportunity to appeal if you think the judge has got it wrong. Um, finally, third parties. In court litigation, it's relatively straightforward to add in a third party who isn't a party to your contract, to your dispute. The same isn't true of arbitration because of this um, consensual nature of arbitration. You need their agreement to be added into the arbitration. So that is a, um, a wrinkle in the process. It's not impossible, but it's much more difficult. And that actually brings us to the end of this podcast episode. So thank you very much to you both, to Catherine and to Tom, for joining me. And thanks for listening. Please do join us again next time when we're going to have a look at the second part of this topic and think about procedure and strategy for bringing a dispute for breach of a patent license agreement. And if perhaps you didn't follow our guidance on the drafting of provisions we talked about today or the agreement hasn't covered those points comprehensively, then what might you need to think about before you file a claim? So until next time, thanks very much.